0: Welcome to another episode of the Green Minds podcast. My name is Claudia, and today's episode is co-hosted by my fellow student and dear friend, Delphine Marie Zacarias, who is also studying MSC Climate Change Management and Finance at Imperial College with me. We are honored to have a great guest today with us, Kiara Berry. Kiara is a policy and campaign manager at Fashion Revolution. She co-leads the Good Good Clothes Fair Pay campaign, which is the biggest European campaign on living wages in the fashion industry ever. We're going to talk about this, of course. The Good Clothes Fair fair Pay campaign demands groundbreaking living wage legislation at EU level for garment, textile and footwear workers worldwide. Kiera is also an author and lead researcher at the Global Fashion Transparency Index, an annual report ranking fashion brands on disclosure of their human rights and environmental policies, practices and impacts. Kiera is interested in the accessibility of sustainable consumption and the intersection of environmental and social justice, and also passionate about gender equality, female empowerment and fashion supply chain, which are major employer of women globally. Welcome, Kiera.
1: Thank you. That's a great intro. I feel like I don't even need to introduce myself. (laughs) You've done it for me. (laughs) That's very flattering. Thank you.
0: Of course. And I also like to welcome Delphine, who um, actually led Berlin's Fashion Revolution Ambassador Group last year and is also one of the biggest fashion inspos I know. Hi, Delphine, and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Claudia, for letting me co-host this podcast episode. I was really looking forward to this. Yes, same. So although I already introduced you a bit, Kiera, um, why don't you please tell us a bit more about yourself and mostly what led you to uh, working at Fashion Revolution, what was your journey, and maybe also a bit about what Fashion Revolution is and what you do.
1: Yeah, I mean, lots of questions there. So yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be on. And of course, um, I think we've got three fashion revolutionaries here in this interview. But yeah, as you've mentioned, I wanted to plug Delphine and all the work she did in our FR Germany team. Um, So fashion revolution is the world's biggest fashion activism movement. So we were formed nearly 10 years ago now in the tragic wake of the Rana Plaza collapse which you may or may not have heard about, your listeners may or may not have heard about, but it was um, a really tragic preventable accident where um, a mixed-use building which housed garment factories as well as some other businesses collapsed in what was a completely preventable accident. Over a thousand people, mainly young women of colour, were killed and um, thousands more received injuries and Yes, and the need for transparency in fashion and for accountability in fashion and for fashion brands to take responsibility for preventing accidents like this by surfacing and caring about the working conditions and the lives of the people that made their clothes was really obvious um, because we had people... Human rights activists and trade unions literally on their hands and knees, digging through the rubble, trying to find clothing labels to link fashion brands to prove that they were working there. And so this need for transparency was really obvious. A few peers in the industry came together and formed Fashion Revolution. And we've really grown now. We have teams in over 90 countries, including Germany, but all over the world. And yeah, we just campaign in three main ways, which I can come on to later um to to build a better fairer safer fashion industry for both people and planet and how I got involved so I have a background in human geography that's what I did my undergraduate in and at university and still now I was really interested in um the lives of like and the experiences of work of People in the informal economy. So, if you think about, I did my fieldwork in Buenos Aires, and that's people like that are selling roses on the side of cars, or a uh, sweeping streets, or putting your luggage into taxis, things like that, that are informally employed. And part of what we were researching when we were there was. Um, underground garment workers and kind of informal workers in the garment sector and that got me super interested it kind of intersected a lot of my interests which is like women's rights workers rights environmental justice all these things kind of came together and so yeah fascinated by that still am and I went on to um work for a medium-sized British fashion brand in their responsible sourcing team learned loads started as ethical trade assistant was mainly working ethical trade stuff moved into kind of more responsible sourcing and materials because they really overlapped you can't really talk about you know every environmental impact as a human impact so like looking at them in isolation wasn't very helpful so got good experience there and then I moved on to fashion revolution about two and a half years ago that's a whistle stop tour
0: (laughs) thanks for sharing and before we move on to the to Delphine's question I wanted to ask you mentioned what the fashion revolution does in in general but you also mentioned three kind of ways how you do it so maybe would you explain it to us uh, briefly What how how our listeners can imagine the activities of fashion revolution
1: yeah so we divide ourselves and our work into three main ways so well to achieve change so firstly citizen change or culture change secondly we focus on industry change and thirdly we focus on policy change now those three streams do overlap each other and they're not completely distinct but we do categorize in those three ways so an example of culture change is we try and raise public awareness and educate people about the systemic challenges facing the fashion industry so we try and build a really diverse movement but also mobilize people all around the world behind collective asks so giving them the tools to stand up with this community and say this is the fashion industry we want um and take collective action and really try and help individuals and citizens understand the impacts of their clothes and how they can influence the fashion industry so that's the citizen culture change arm and some examples of that that people might be familiar with maybe not are campaigns like who made my clothes so holding up posters tweeting using social media to tweet um fashion brands with a poster that says who made my clothes and saying you know I'm your customer. I love your style. I want to know who made my clothes and in what conditions and getting people to do that on that is is a really successful viral um, campaign for Fashion Revolution. We also another example of a citizen change, culture changes. We um, the FR USA team took over some fast fashion um, hashtags, did a hashtag hijack in um, Fashion Revolution week last year. So we talk about like we speak to ourselves. A lot of people that follow Fashion Revolution are somewhat um, on side already you know they, they're aware of these issues but how do we reach people that are doing hauls of like ultra fast fashion and kind of get the information out to them so what they did was they flooded the hashtags of like boohoo babes or whatever they were with information about the realities of the fashion industry and a way to reach customers so that's one way citizen culture change the second way is industry change and we mainly do this through um research so you spoke about before the fashion transparency index which is our landmark piece of research that we produce annually so in that we rank review and rank 250 of the world's biggest fashion brands and retailers across a really wide range of, of transparency of a really wide range of environmental social and governance issues and we rank them against each other we put it in the public domain and they care about their ranking and where they rank and next to others because investors use this information as well as like it gets a lot of press attention so in that way we're trying to influence industry from the inside out so we have calls with these brands they have the you know, they get our template and we rank them based on all these issues and they have the t- chance to improve over time and challenge points to try and like get a race to the top in that sense in a voluntary way. So that's industry change. So we're trying to change the fashion industry as it is now. And thirdly, policy change is we're trying to influence governments, and particularly the EU at the moment, to introduce legislation that builds a fairer fashion industry for people and planet and we use our culture movements and our citizen movements and our industry you know we find the results of our industry research to say look so one example is 96% of the world's biggest fashion brands and retailers do not disclose the number of workers in their supply chain that earn a living wage so we go to policy at the EU and say look we've been measuring this for years and years and years in the fashion transparency index annually 96% still don't disclose this information they're not going to unless there's a of them that will not do this voluntarily we need binding legislation that mandates this and here's the evidence for it so if they don't bring that in then they're not going to we've been trying voluntarily for years it's not moving so those are our three streams i hope that makes sense so citizen and culture change industry change and policy change and they overlap but we try and those are the three buckets I suppose that we focus on.
2: Thank you that was very very insightful so this episode will go online during fashion revolution week and I was wondering if you could please tell us what it is and what's happening around the world in this week.
1: Yes so we're still in the planning stages of this year it's a big year for us because it's 10 years since the Rana Plaza collapse so it's our biggest kind of week of movement and action so we always try and mobilize people all around the world to take action in Fashion Revolution Week and we use it as a real catalyst for that citizen change that culture change that I was speaking about not just the citizen change in itself but also to inform our policy change to inform our industry change Say, look how many people are listening and taking part so brands you better start changing and responding to demands but also policy makers you need to step up this is there's a critical threshold of this many people globally who are taking action so um our theme this year is a manifesto for fashion revolution so we're really going to talk about and plan citizen actions and campaigns around our manifesto points which people can find on the website i can link to it with you as well, you can maybe put it in the show notes, I don't know, I don't know what you do in podcasts, but um, we, yeah, so uh, we're going to ask people all around the world to take part, and we also shut down our channels on the 24th of April, which is the anniversary of the Rana Plaza collapse, so we want to commemorate that day and mark the anniversary, but we don't want to call for action on that day, because it's, it's actually a day of, like, mourning, and out of respect for the victims and their families, many who still don't have justice, we... Yeah, we just close it down. But the rest of the week, we really use to uh, motivate and campaign for change that this sort of instant, you know, doesn't happen again in the future. And talk to policymakers, talk to citizens and talk to brands about the sorts of changes we need to build a fairer fashion system. So,
2: yeah, that's Fashion Revolution Week.
1: Um, Everyone's yeah. invited.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We'll definitely try to mobilise as many as people as possible to join this week. Um, So, as you just said, 2023 marks the 10 years since Rana Plaza happened. Are there any big improvements in the fashion sector since then? Um, Could you please guide us a bit through it? What happened? What still needs to happen? I think there's a lot on both of the ends.
1: Yeah, so I think it's really important to firstly acknowledge the improvements that have been made and who they've been led by. So. Particularly international trade unions, the trade union movement, which is obviously made up of workers and represents workers, have been at the absolute forefront of pushing through some really big improvements, particularly in Bangladesh. So the main way that it's changed and the big improvement that's been very hard for and hard won by the trade unions movement, civil society and others, there are a lot of stakeholders involved in this, is something called the International Accord. Um, And again, I can provide a link to it. It's quite a... A uh, big topic and I'm not an expert on the accord although I, I do touch on it in my work but it's the, um, the it's first of its kind binding legislation on garment worker health and safety and it was a landmark kind of agreement between trade unions brands fashion brands and suppliers so the factory owners um, that give workers protections in a way that just has, hasn't hasn't ever been done before or since the international accord has been was a five year plan that was renewed after again a lot of campaigning and very hard fought by civil society and trade unions however um we'd like to see it really expanded so it's gone into Pakistan for example and it's just it's saved lives there's no doubt about it that the Bangladesh accord has saved lives and other preventable accidents like that in Bangladesh because it's just groundbreaking um binding agreements on health and safety that gives workers like the legal right to walk away from a factory that they are you know that they're scared is going to collapse as we know that in Rana Plaza loads of the a lot of the women raised the concerns so there's big cracks in the building we don't feel safe but if they left they wouldn't have been paid so there's there's a lot of there, there has been a lot hard fought and hard won and it's a really landmark legislation and um you know, it's, it's, it's a huge improvement and it's and it's also being expanded to Pakistan. We'd like to expand to many more garment producing countries more quickly, but it's quite it's quite slow to roll out. But it's, thankfully, I mean, it was such an awful tragedy, but it was Rana Plaza collapsing, but it was a catalyst for some improvement. And there haven't been, you know, um, factory collapses on that scale in Bangladesh since. And that is in, in huge thanks to the Accord. However, there is still not just in Bangladesh, but globally, there is still so far to go in terms of creating a just, fair, sustainable fashion industry. So one example that I always use, I'm a living wage campaigner, so I always talk about. So a living wage, for those that don't know, it's a minimum. It's not, it's different to a minimum wage. It's about what is the minimum amount of money for the person to earn to provide a fair but decent, you know a basic but decent standard of life for themselves and their dependents and maybe their children maybe their family and it's um yes yeah, so it's not a high wage but it's a, a decent basic standard of living to cover things like housing food healthcare and so on and 96 you know the fashion industry is built on poverty pay and that really hasn't improved in in some cases it's actually gone backwards in the last decade. so for example over covid we saw wage theft and wage loss um on a massive scale so um, most of the people that make our clothes are still not earning living wages. They are, you know, that just 96% of the world's biggest brands and retailers won't disclose how many workers in their supply chain are earning living wage. And let me tell you, if there were workers earning living wage, they'd tell you about it. So that, so that is somewhere that I'd really like to see improvement is on living wages, but also the hard fought, hard won improvements in worker health and safety of the Accord in Bangladesh and Pakistan, I'd love to see that expanded.
0: Thank you very much for this overview. Um, you already mentioned um, some very, very important things that you spoke about. Let's unpack them one by one. Uh, but I would like to combine what you just described about the difference between kind of the minimum wage and the fair living wage with actually your work. Uh, so as I mentioned, you lead the good clothes fair Pay campaign, right? And this one um, is kind of aimed at addressing this question. And I have this one interesting statistics to add here that... That is, it has been estimated that kind of ensuring a payment of a fair living wages uh, for workers. This was in Australian clothing supply chains, but that's just like one case study would increase the retail cost of an item, so the purchase price for us as consumers by one percent. So that would be ten cents on the ten dollar T-shirt. I don't know if 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 you agree with this kind of this was just one case study, but by Oxfam, but. Just going back to my question, um, can you please guide us through this campaign that you're co-leading and uh, kind of what the end goal and the ideal situation with this would be?
1: Yeah, so what I'll do is I'll take you through the campaign first and then I'll address that question because it's a really good one and it's one that comes up a lot when I speak about the campaign. So just for context for your listeners, most of the people who make our clothes earn so little that they are trapped in poverty. These workers are mainly women and they earn on average about 45 to 47 percent less than they need to provide for themselves and their families. So despite working really gruelling hours, most cannot afford to do things like put healthy food on the table live in adequate safe housing access healthcare, and some even struggle to send their children to school uh, I'll go into this later because I think it would be too big an answer for this but poverty is obviously a bad enough um hardship in and of itself but it also contributes to lots of other risks so it's not just poverty it's lots of other problems too and the fashion industry this is not These poverty wages are not like, oh, they're just an unfortunate outcome and there's no other way. It's not that there's not money in fashion. In fact, the fashion industry is extremely wealthy, but the wealth is concentrated in the hands of a few. So Oxfam Research again, big up Oxfam, I'm glad you brought those up. Um, They show that it takes just four days for the CEO of one of the world's largest fashion brands to earn what a garment worker in Bangladesh will earn in her entire lifetime. So this is the level of inequality and exploitation that's going on. And for too long, for decades, brands have promised to do the right thing in a voluntary capacity. So they, you know, they've said they don't need legislation on it. But the truth is they haven't. Progress is so slow. And as I mentioned, in some cases going backwards that we just can't wait for voluntary measures anymore. And that's why we set up the Good Clothes Fair Pay campaign to call on the european commission to introduce eu legislation on living wages for garment workers worldwide so it would apply to any brand selling their clothes into the eu market because we think also it's really important that rather than just put pressure on garment producing countries who might be really reliant on garment production in their GDP, and like as part, you know, it's not just up to them to legislate, but actually, the EU is the single biggest consumers of clothes in the world. We as consumers creating the demand, we are the ones that also have joint responsibility for the workers who make our clothes. Um, so yeah, we have used a mechanism called an ECI, which is the European Citizens Initiative, and it's a long boring bureaucratic method at EU level but what I will tell you is it's very complex I learned a lot about EU law because I don't have a law background but if we collect 1 million EU signatures within 12 months, the European Commission has to consider our legal proposal, have a plenary or debate on it and formally respond. So if any of your listeners have an EU passport, no matter where they live. So, for example, I have an Irish passport. I live in London. I can still sign. Do go to goodclothesfairpay.eu to sign. Um, so, yeah, just to come back to your earlier question about um, the, the price, I think that's so critical because... I want to build solidarity in this campaign between the people who wear our clothes and the people who make our clothes they are both disproportionately, I mean, men do wear clothes too, but the biggest consumers of clothes are women globally. The biggest producers of clothes are women globally. And actually there quite can be quite big parallels and similarities between in-work poverty of the people who buy our clothes and are exploited through systems like buy now, pay later and really aggressive marketing and AI and really successful. You know, it's very hard on TikTok hauls and things. They can really... do quite aggressive marketing to people and kind of sell them the dream if you buy these clothes you'll feel better playing on insecurities but also of course the women who make our clothes are, are in poverty and not always safe in work and they're in hard situations as well and I think it's really important to know that like the, the wage costs make up such such a marginal percentage of the overall price of your clothes, even if your clothes are relatively cheap. So you talked about a £10 or a €10 euro T-shirt. That is it's right that labour costs are about one to three percent. So even if they doubled overnight, you're talking, like you said, on a 10 $10 t shirt, 10 euro. I don't know, I'm mixing up my currencies here, but whatever that you know, so let's say 10 euro, you're talking about 10 cents more. And what I would say is, as well, that is if 100%. So let's say for, for most people, paying 10 cent more is worth it if they know the life of the person that make their clothes is lifted out of poverty and is paid fairly. I think we can all justify 10 cents more. But if But actually we're in a cost of living crisis as a lot of consumers are themselves in work poverty or otherwise. And why should that 10 cents be passed on directly to the consumer? The middleman is a fashion brand and the the fashion brands I research turn over millions and billions in profit. Some of the richest people on the face of the planet are fashion billionaires and that spans from high street fast fashion brands to luxury. Some of the almost the richest family in every country in the world. Are, you know, if you look at Spain, it's Inditex family. If you look at the Netherlands, it's a CNA family. If you look at, you know, just uh, so many of the richest people on the earth have made their fortunes, their billionaire fortunes in fashion, so actually shouldn't it be up to those billionaire owned brands and those fashion brands who have lots of money to absorb that 10 cent increase, shouldn't we just say actually these are the boundaries, the planetary and human boundaries of operating a business, which is yes you can make profit but you can't do it by absolutely exploiting your workers to the point of poverty and so they could still afford to pass on that t-shirt at 10 pounds and accept the 10 the 10p increase, I've really mixed up my currencies, but do you see what I'm saying? The 1% they could swallow that cost and not pass it on to consumers at all. But even if 100% of the increased cost was passed on to consumers, please don't think you're... I think it's such a myth that like sustainable fashion is so inaccessible and like it's so expensive. And I do understand people's genuine concerns in a cost of living crisis of another basic item like clothing going up massively, but that doesn't have to be the case these brands can absorb the cost or if they're passed on entirely to consumers, they are a tiny fraction of the overall cost of your clothes. And it's really important to for people to know that.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Thanks for highlighting this. And there's so much to unpack from what you just said. I just want to one more time reinforce people and encourage them to really sign the... Good Clothes Fair Pay campaign, and I'm going to also link it in the show notes so that people just have it one click away. And actually, um, yesterday or two days ago, I was just scrolling on my Instagram and I just saw these reels from the uh, Slovakian fashion revolution as I'm a Slovakian uh, by origin. Oh, yeah. and it was translated. It was so nicely done. And like, it shows all the background and, and it it says it in, within 60 seconds. And it really uh, was nice to see. And ahead of this recording, it made me just smile. Um, and yeah, obviously, obviously, I signed it. The Slovakia
1: Um, team are amazing. And I don't know if you knew any of those celebrities or influencers that were involved, but they've really boosted the campaign. And actually, shout out Slovakia, we've passed the signature threshold in Slovakia. So only two countries have achieved that so far as the Netherlands and Slovakia. And I think their video... And all those celebrities and influencers that like, gave their time for you know unpaid time and like yeah it's fantastic and yeah I love the video too so I'm so glad that
0: yeah <laughs> no that was just like a, one note I wanted to say and this is also when people you know say best stuff about social media it can really help sometimes in in certain times like this Um just one brief question so just to. Kind of reiterate uh, what you said about big fashion companies and how they concentrate the wealth. So is it true that you believe that um, these big fa- fast fashion companies are the ones uh, responsible when it comes to the fashion, making the fashion industry more sustainable? Or is there any bigger force that you believe can push it really?
2: yeah i
1: don't think it's any one player i think like as with all these conversations there's lots lots to consider and as i say we campaign in three ways which is like we do focus on citizens and individuals and i do think every individual action does matter i know it can feel like it's so insignificant but it's particularly when we collectively mobilize it's all social justice movements have shown us over time whether that's black lives matter lgbt rights you know coming together and like um asking for the same thing is a very powerful thing um but i like to punch up (laughs) and rather than go for individuals who i do recognize for all those reasons i was speaking about before you know might have their own struggles who is more responsible is it the individual consumer who buys clothes or is it the billionaire brand that's billionaire owned who you know of course like yes individuals can make a difference but let's really focus on who has the power in the situation and who is driving it so the main people that I focus my efforts and my energy on is the big big profitable fashion brands who aren't doing the right thing and I would say that's not just fast fashion actually these issues span luxury sports where high street, fast fashion, ultra fast fashion and actually like luxury is a sector that really goes under the radar. People think if they're paying £2,000 for a handbag, £3,000 that means the person's paid better. Actually there's far less investigative journalism and research on those brands. Despite paying more doesn't mean the is paid any more and actually there's all often less of a spotlight on them and in our research we find the least transparent brands are, are the luxury sector. That's not to let anyone off the hook but I, I just think these issues are systemic and the issues with fast fashion in terms of like mass overproduction and waste, we also see parallels in the mass-produced luxury market. So they're also pumping out way too many items. They're not taking responsibility for their waste. The scandals of, you know, incinerating stock and burning stock. Because they don't want to lose brand exclusivity and they don't want to donate it to, you know, so there's there's lots of problems that span lots of sectors. So I've really gone off on a tangent here. I can't even remember what the question was. What was it? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, basically punch up. So I would say I all again, I don't focus on small fashion brands who are often try and do the right thing with limited resource who I research and focus on big, profitable fashion brands, whether they're luxury, mid sector, sports sector, fast fashion. I hold them accountable. If they have the money, they have the resources, they have the biggest negative impact, they need to do better. I also focus on um, holding accountable the governments and policymakers who have failed this sector and failed the workers and the environment in it for decades. And increasingly, I'm trying to focus on importing country markets and legislation. So like EU legislation, UK legislation, rather than just always putting the burden on, um, you know, countries that are big, garment producing countries because there's lots of power imbalances and issues there so like legacies of colonialism and reasons these countries are so reliant on single industries like garment garment production can make them quite vulnerable in terms like financially so if so I really think, yeah, just where the power is, where the money is, those are the people we need to focus on. So first and foremost, that means governments of importing countries and it means um, big fashion brands putting pressure on them to do the right thing. But I also obviously really welcome collective action from individuals and I think it's any everyone, you know, every individual action matters, particularly if we come together.
0: I definitely agree. And, and we do have more questions about transparency and uh, super insightful, by the way, what you just said about luxury brands go being under radar so thanks for sharing that before continuing with transparency and social debate and sustainability in general i have one question which is more technical but uh, we were just interested in your insight which is that there is no exact figure on how many greenhouse and more environmental so Mm. there is no exact figure on how many greenhouse gases the fashion industry is responsible for globally uh, from my research, the figures uh, discussed range from like four percent, that's by McKinsey, to about twenty percent, that's uh, European institutional research. So it varies by source. So what do you think? Why do you think this is, and why is it so complicated to calculate? And what would be needed to get a reliable estimate?
1: I love this question. Every panel I go on, people give me a different figure, which is like, oh, it's the second biggest polluter on Earth or it's the 10th or it's the 10 percent. And thank you. <laughs> I can tell that you're doing a master's as a researcher because it's all absolute nonsense like every single figure I see I just think I don't believe that and the reason I don't believe any of them like firstly obviously they're all estimates there's there's no doubt about that because the data doesn't exist and the reason the data doesn't exist and I can say that with certainty is because I'm a researcher in fashion transparency and I measure the world's biggest brands and retailers on their public disclosure across a really big range of indicators which includes a scope one scope two and scope three emissions and the data is just not there for Scope three for the vast majority of the world's biggest fashion brands and retailers. So what these estimates are based on, I just don't know. So categorically, first two things. First and foremost, we need mandated transparency and disclosure. It's not they need to map their they don't even know where their clothes are being made or in what conditions or where their cotton farms are. So firstly, we need transparency I don't just mean of this so map your supply chains know where they are but also disclose all the facilities and start measuring and reporting disclose what are your carbon impacts along the way and until you do that until you have traceability along your supply chain I don't know what these estimates are based on they're just I think they're just plucked out of thin air because there's no way people can know it without that information and also the nature of fashion supply chains means that it's not like I'm going to make up some fashion brands they're called A and B it's not like A has a factory that produces clothes for it and B has a factory that produces clothes for it fashion like the supply chains are messy they're complex they're overlapping so a, a producer of like cotton jersey t-shirts for example will produce for a lot of the high street so even if you know the emissions of that facility which many of them don't by the way even their first here let alone further down when there's more there's more carbon output like you know fields and factories i mean fields and farms but say at that factory how do you count if you just have one production line out of 40 and you produce i don't know five t t-shirts but only at one time of year how do you then divvy up that carbon footprint like it's just so messy and complicated and hard to work out that without trans without traceability of their own supply chains all the way down including the most polluting like areas further down the supply chain and disclose you know and real industry movement around like all the fashion brands that produce this facility are going to ask for a carbon measure that carbon impact and disclose it we just can't know and I think what gets us there again we've had years of like voluntary inaction and you know some brands are trying but it's very hard in mixed facilities to do this in a meaningful way unless all players you know we need legislation to kind of move everyone at the same time so that they ask suppliers for the same thing rather than you know each wanting a different measurement on water on carbon on whatever it is for their sustainability report we need really standardized reporting and disclosure and so that comes with transparency legislation and them enforcing that so Without the transparency, we will never know the carbon footprint of the fashion industry, like so many brands we speak to don't even know where their clothes are made at like the factory level, let alone further down. So it's impossible, like there just isn't the data there to calculate it. So that's what we need is like enhanced traceability, transparency requirements where they have to disclose each stage and disclose the kind of outputs measure you know my colleague she always says that like she used to be an environmental auditor for the food industry and it's just so different like she would go to a factory and that factory would only produce I don't know ketchup for Heinz saying that's the only thing so you knew that you could measure the, the you could measure greenhouse gas emissions out of that facility in terms of you looked you know you have a sustainability manager of that site who measures what energy you're using what energies is coming in and out and you know all of that is part of Heinz's overall footprint it's very difficult and different in the fashion industry but considering there aren't even people capturing that data at first tier level let alone further down these brands have absolutely no idea what their fashion so we know it's huge but we just don't know how big it is and I don't really believe any of the estimates because the trans i just don't know what they're based on because there's just no transparency if brands literally don't know where their clothes are made at tier one let alone further down they don't know where the cotton is what farm the cotton is coming from how can they possibly estimate their overall carbon
2: footprint in a way that's like in any way accurate okay, so coming back to the global fashion transparency index could you please explain a bit the data inputs and calculation because you just said that literally the is not a lot of data for many of the companies. And could you please also let us know what it means for a company to have a high score in this fashion transparency index? And would this mean that they're kind of like a good company? Mm-hmm. So,
1: no. <laughs> so basically what the fashion transparency index measures is public disclosure against a range 246 I think indicators that cover environmental social and governance indicators so do you disclose the names and addresses of the factories where your clothes are made do you disclose the names and addresses of the farms where your raw materials are grown does it uh, we cannot verify that data like we just can't it's, far beyond the scope of the research to actually, you know, if one fashion brand has 2,600 first-tier suppliers, we cannot possibly verify. They say they're making in this facility, this factory. We are not eyes and ears on the ground. We can't verify that. But what we can... We can... So we're only... Um, saying is, do they disclose what they claim to be their factories, their names and addresses? Do they disclose their farms and fields? And we want that information to be used. So first, why why transparency? Then we use it because it can um, enable scrutiny. So experts on the ground, whether that's trade unions, workers groups, human rights groups, can use that information to hold the brand to account. So let's say they claim they work in one facility and there's a, an issue there, a Rana Plaza collapse or a gender-based violence case, if on their website they claim to work in that facility, those trade unions can go to that fashion brand and say, you, you say publicly that you work here, you need to help us to address it. So what we don't measure is we don't verify the information and we also don't pass comment on good or bad. So we can't say that's a good facility, that's a good factory, that's a bad factory. We're only trying to incentivize them to publicly disclose so that people on the ground experts can verify. And that's not just on supply chain data, but it's also on things like child labour, I mean, just so many different issues, like are you disclosing your carbon footprint? Are you disclosing your water footprint? Are you disclosing at all these different levels? We're not commenting whether they're good or bad. So people could get the points by being transparent about their factory list doesn't mean the factories where they're making are good but it does make them more accountable for in improving and just if something goes wrong or the for the workers and the environment along the way the more transparent they are the more accountable they are and we've seen that's a really uh useful lever for like positive change was that the whole question i can't remember the first bit
2: i think that has been answered very greatly thank you so okay. much so coming uh up- bit to the side of individual consumers and their purchase decisions. I would be interested in how do you spot unsustainable fashion brands? Are there some indicators? Like for example, I always look out for material composition and watch out polyester. So heavy Mm -hmm. polyester textiles I personally use as an indicator for unsustainable fashion, but I'm sure that there are many, many other indicators. So what can you tell people what they should look out for?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, again, I don't pin the responsibility on the consumers, but I think like, if you want to be like an active citizen and you want to look out for things, here are some flags, but obviously, as I said throughout this, I really hold the fashion brands and the governments responsible for for this. Um, so we always say the best con- the best decision a consumer can make is no decision at all. We want you know, we don't want clothes on this on the online or on the shop shelves that are made in poverty, made in. Um, despair in terms of working conditions or environmental damage we don't even want that to be on sale so that they you know customers can't accidentally be complicit but um it's very difficult with material mix because i agree that polyester has its big challenges and it's it's one of the worst materials whether it's recycled or virgin um, oil or polyester that's going into it but what people don't know I mean it's just so complex because that releases microfibers into the seas or oceans but so do natural fibres and natural fibres do as well. like often you could buy a natural fibre but the um, chemicals used to process it are like forever chemicals they're called and they are themselves synthetic so it might be a natural material but they bind to the um, fibres and the microfibers, so they will also stay in rivers for years and we have research on this. But also the natural fibers like cotton, there's been horrendous human rights abuses in cotton supply chains and also leather. So uh, it might be better environmentally in some ways, like some people, you know, like you might think oh, leather will break down because it's natural. Well, not if it's coated in forever chemicals and it might you might have cleared the Amazon rainforest to kind of grow that you know So it's, it's just there are no easy solutions i think the best things to do are if you can buy second hand it's not an option open to everyone of everybody's size or you might need a bit more time and not everyone is you know some people are very time poor if they're working maybe two or three jobs or they just don't have the capacity but if you can buy second hand if you need something or swap with someone that's probably the best you can do because those clothes are already made You're not giving your money over to fashion brands that are going to continue to churn churn things out um and also like just don't buy (laughs) shop your own wardrobe it's the most sustainable clothes the ones that you already own so if you can just pause um and wear what you have then that is like the just in so many other aspects of sustainability whether it's sustainable travel or like trying to eat a more sustainable diet there's extra steps to go through or like a bit more effort or time needs to be used to like do it more sustainably so if you want to travel to a country by train and bus rather than flight that's going to take more time or if you want to eat a vegan diet or something it might take a bit more effort but actually with clothes it's really easy just just stop buying it's like the best thing you can do for the environment but where you do need new or you do want to replace something yeah if you can buy second hand, that's a great way to start and um what else? Just also take citizen action. So you could sign our, you're not just a consumer, you're also a citizen. So if you write to your policymaker and say, I care about fashion, these are the changes I want to see. Or if you sign petitions like our Good Clothes for a Pay campaign, cheeky plug, <laughs> like that is more meaningful. Like not to really expensive brands or you know, they're not open to everyone, but there are actions you can take without buying that are really meaningful. Um, I'm trying to think of some other top tips the the two that I look for I mean it's very very confusing I'm a researcher in this I read sustainability reports for a living and I even find them confusing and misleading and I I can understand completely why people get like you know the greenwashing is very um, convincing and why brands are totally not sustainable appear that way because of how they communicate but like a good question to ask brands is like Are these workers paid a living wage? Because the vast majority, you know, they might go on and on about their female empowerment programme or this or that. But the most important thing you can do for a woman is just pay her enough for her to be lifted out of poverty. So, you know, that before any female empowerment programme. So are the workers paid a living wage? And also look at their volume output, because you can make marginally better T-shirts or You know, you might use organic cotton, you might use recycled polyester, but if you continue to churn out at the rate of 3 billion items per year, that's what one fashion brand told us, one out of the 250 we look at told us they make. Those levels of production volumes, even if they're marginally better per item, that churn is fundamentally unsustainable. So those are two I'd look at, like living wages and like volume, but Overall, it's very hard, very complicated and actually raising your voice as a citizen, not just a consumer is one of the best things you can do. And just slowing down, using your own wardrobe and just unsubscribe from all the, all the fast fashion
0: emails, I think. I couldn't agree more. And actually, a recent episode of Green Minds uh, features our professor we had for Sustainable Consumption Elective. And the main message of that podcast, basically of him talking for an hour was that, the most sustainable choice you can make—not obviously not in any situation, but in most—and it's for free—is to not or to buy less. So yeah. the quantity is more important than the type, mm. um, and that's such a—it's it's a very basic thing or like a very simple, uh, simple sentence. But it's just—it makes so much impact if we think about it. So thank you for reiter- reiterating that and sharing mm. uh, all those all those tips. I think it's really helpful. Uh, So we're now moving towards the end, but before we just have a couple questions about the kind of future of fashion. Do you see a changing role in the future for small individual designers of slow and sustainable fashion or do you believe their impact on shaping or reshaping the fashion industry will be small given the global nature of the industry we just talked about and its scope?
1: Yeah, so we have uh, Fashion Revolution has the incubator program at the moment called Small But Perfect and we're taking a range of amazing small fashion brands and designers some mentoring and they don't have ambitions of being these multi-billion dollar companies and churning out loads of clothes but they what they do is they're learning from each other on best practice on a range of range of different issues and they're you know producing in a way that is more sustainable and they're learning and I'm um, and actually in terms of product like volume although we have enormous players in the fashion industry that do dominate the high street and most of our consumption the biggest chunk of the fashion if you look at the number of fashion brands in like the world vast majority of them are SMEs so small and medium enterprises so although individually they don't have the same impact as like the big players and we need to focus on the big players who have the most money resources negative impact responsibility when you look at the smaller ones together they make up a huge if not bigger sector section of the overall market so we can't diminish them either and I think they have a really vital role to play and actually like it's a very contentious issue because when legislation comes through at EU level which we're campaigning for often SMEs are out of scope so it doesn't apply to them and while I do understand that there needs to be um a principle of proportionality where like you know a zara h H&M, and a mega fashion brand whoever they are um have got to you know be more responsible put more resources than a small or medium brand of course they do um if we just mo- miss out the sme sector we're also I- i'm not sure that we're getting the solutions we really need so it's it's all such a balance but i absolutely think that smes have a role to play they make up combined they make up a really significant proportion of the fashion industry and actually they they really are on the forefront of doing the right thing often like these brands often have much smaller teams much less resources and really care and really try and do the right thing in a way that that you know they're competing against players who just don't have the same regard for the environment or human rights so yeah I think they have a really big role to play and I I really hope to see them lifted up you know and I really what I love about the small but perfect program is it's about like collaboration not competition so they're all learning from each other and sharing best practice um so one might sell sustainable underwear one might sell sustainable leggings but whatever it is they're not they don't see each other as fierce competitors but rather like they're building a fashion industry that they want together and and sharing their ideas and I think that collaborative approach is really important for the SME movement particularly as they have to compete against massive Massive brands.
2: So thank you very much for this. And when connecting what you just said again to like the bigger picture of the global fashion industry, what would you say? How will the future of fashion look like? Or how you would, as Fashion Revolution, envision this future to look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it's just a huge question and one I could probably talk about for a long time. But some of the things I'm campaigning for and really passionate about is like, I think first and foremost, we need more transparency and accountability. And I'm more convinced than ever that legislation really has a role to play in this because we just can't, although we have made big improvements in terms of asking brands to voluntarily disclose that stuff, you know the ones that don't engage with us that won't disclose that they need legislation to move them and that the people that are willing to disclose need to compete against you know should not have to compete against people that don't so i think transparency and accountability is a really good first step for improving both human rights and environmental impacts you can't measure what you can't see so you need to transparency first and foremost and then i'd love to see improvements on issues like living wages so I think achieving worker justice often goes hand in hand with climate justice they're not in competition with each other so an example is if you pay workers a living wage that's one of the most effective ways we have to slow down the fashion industry and therefore produce less items because for you know years suppliers have been pressured to produce more and more clothes in less time and for less money. But if we pay people living wages, we're going to slow down the fashion industry, reduce the output, so reduce the waste, reduce the environmental impacts, but also achieve worker justice. So, yeah, that's what I'd say is I see worker justice and climate justice also going hand in hand. And when you improve one, you often improve the other.
0: Thank you very much for sharing this. And I think this very much applies to more industries and like the climate change debate in general. So now I have my last question, which I always ask our guests in this podcast about um, like, you know, in general, when they are interested in sustainability in general and they want to have a career, uh, pursue a career in sustainability, specifically maybe in this case, sustainability in fashion. Mm -hmm. uh, What would you advise young professionals, students, people who want to maybe switch their jobs, kind of one advice from what you've learned and the people you interact with?
1: Yeah so quite a practical one is if they are quite entry level to this to the sustainable fashion world and they want to find out more we have a free online course that they can take a future learn course about fashion and the SDGs which are the sustainable development goals so I can link you to that um, and that's a really good place to start if you want to do a free online course and kind of get to know the basics if you're trying to transition so that's one practical thing and then another thing that i've done throughout my kind of uni career and my career so far is like i wanted to move into the um campaigning kind of civil society space even when i was at a fashion brand and even when before that when i was doing field work at university so getting involved in social justice movements come join us at fashion revolution we have volunteer teams all around the world and even if it's not fashion revolution if you can I don't know set up a swap shop or do you don't have to wait till you're employed in the industry to to start to start conversations about you know social justice and fashion or sustainable fashion you can get involved now in like a voluntary capacity or have conversations with your own friends and family and I think that will really build your confidence and can you can bring that to interviews or job applications um And also I've met like some great friends and like, you know, really some of the best people in my life through through these movements. And you really have something in common. So (laughs) mobilize. That's (laughs) what I say, like joint joint movements is where it's at. Um, You meet great friends, have a good time. If it's something you care about anyway, it's a good hobby. If not, um, you know, you're still still a fashion campaigner, even if it's not your job, but it can also help you get those jobs.
0: Yeah, no, and there you have like to, to our listeners. There you have already two great contacts at Fashion Revolution, which both will, will be linked in the description. If you want to join Fashion Revolution as an ambassador or or volunteer, just uh, reach out to Kira or Delphine. But with this, I'd like to thank you, Kira, for coming for sharing all this great knowledge. This was filled with insights, so I'm really looking forward to when it goes live. And and yeah, it's gonna go live in Fashion Revolution Week. So you have still a couple of days to get involved to the listeners. So, yeah, thank you, Kiara.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a great chat.
0: And thank you, Delphine, as well for your help and for joining this podcast. It was great uh, having you both with Kiara here.
2: Sure. Thank you. I always really enjoy your podcast.